law and cause our colleagues to rejoice over us. And may we not say something which is Tameh that it is Tahor, and not something regarding which is Tahor that it is Tameh. And may our colleagues not stumble in a matter of law, and we rejoice over them. For Adonai grants wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil our eyes that we may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. Thank you. I just have to pronounce it Torah when you do Torah. that lesson. Yeah, Otherwise, it's someone started that. All right. So what do you got for us? Well, so one one piece of this, we, we, were, we were talking about, like, what does Judaism what do they say about Mashiach, right? And we read Rambam, uh, Rambam, and we read a couple different things. Mr. Upham gave a great book review. There's a lot of similar stuff that I had just highlighted in what I was reading that was in the Breslau book, like a lot of overlap. So I think that, which makes perfect sense. I mean, the author of that Breslau book clearly is very familiar with passages in the Zohar that speak specifically of Mashiach. So wasn't surprised there, but there is some overlap. But I thought, I mean, just real quick, does everyone know the Zohar? Like, what it, do you, you know where? Because this, this coming, tomorrow night, is Lag Omer, And that is actually the yard site of Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who is the author of the Zohar. Supposedly. So, supposedly, yeah. Moses de Leon, some, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> there's a, uh, but, but. And we can get haircuts. The cool part, yeah, yeah. The cool, um, that's, that's, that's significant because this particular day, Lagba Omer, is a, is a big celebration because of that fact, that it is like this, this major figure's yard site. And so typically like they do bonfires and lots of cool drashes and cool, cool things because, I mean, he, this, the Zohar really opened up like a lot of different perspective on the Torah than was previously, or at least compiled a lot of those mystical thoughts that may have been just all over the place. The, the um, light beam things, is that where it, come, where it comes from? Light beam? Lightsabers? Yeah, the, the Hebrew word is splendor or radiance. The word Zohar, is that what you mean? No, 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 no. The Sephiroth things? Zohar? That's in there. That's not the earliest Jewish stuff. Oh, no. Well, really? Huh. Okay, I thought. Yeah, but uh, pretty much any of the Kabbalistic theology. Any of the Kabbalistic theology is going to be found in the Zohar. So, like all of the different worlds, the various levels of the soul, all the things basically that Pete touched on in his Hasidic classes, yeah. that, that would all be in the Zohar. Yeah, it actually requires that you have something of a working knowledge of those things and don't consider it your introduction to them. Yeah, that's yeah. that's actually a way deep. Good point. Yeah. So, so how does how does the Zohar and the Tanya come together? Tanya is his. Is nothing to do with the Zohar. Really? No. Tanya is much later. Tanya is is like the Chabad Bible. It's um, it's a it's a mix up between a Musar book and a Torah commentary. So what's the Tanya ones that I've got? Those five. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yours only. Yeah. Yeah. But that's later. Yeah. It's not his commentary on the Zohar. No. Oh, no, oh okay. Yeah. 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 It, it's just. It's just, um, it's just his rise. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's a lot of theology, wouldn't you say? Yeah. It's cool stuff. It's yeah. Really cool stuff. Yeah. Very encouraging. Yeah. It's very yeah, very very unique. But anyway, so so that's just kind of like a brief brief thing, and we're coming up on like a cool date that has to do with the Zohar and everything. That's thirty three, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Thirty third day. So um, I what I did was there's a uh, you can find 
a significant portion of the Zohar in English online, and there is a section about Mashiach in there. So there's a there's a ton of stuff. Um, if anyone wants that link, I could probably send it out. But I just sort of highlighted some of the interesting things because a lot of it is um, you would you would, it's surprising, but there is a lot of portions of the Zohar that speak directly of like like really really specific stuff about Mashiach, like like down to like how many months. Like one of the the star of Mashiach will like it'll rise and then it'll like disappear for a certain amount of time and then like he comes back and there's five months and twelve months and there's it, I mean it gets very very specific. Um, so I was trying to look at more of like the what are some statements from like mysticism about Mashiach. Um, so this one was kind of interesting and if any of this is familiar, you'll know why because Mr. Upham had already kind of talked about some of this stuff, but. Uh, this is from Zohar. This is the 99th verse here. I'm not sure which chapter. They didn't put chapters on this one. We don't but, okay. the reference. Zohar will work. Yeah, okay. <laughs> is the so Zohar then, not available to buy in English? It is. Can you buy it? Yes. Yeah. 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 A couple of different publishing companies have it. Okay. Just yeah. check. And there's, I think, Somebody a couple of different check versions, you too, right? Yeah, because I don't know what version this yeah, is. Yeah, that's what I meant. There's Zohar for beginners, Zohar. Well, like a condensed, thing. like a daily kind of thing, isn't that Tikkuni Zohar? Isn't that like a more of a short, um, what, what Cliff? No, that's like commentary on the Zohar. Oh, oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Hands. That's like another source of Zohar. Like, oh, oh, okay, gotcha. All right, all right, yeah. It's crazy. There's so much out there. But yeah, it seems like there's no. There's probably within Judaism they have a pretty good system, but it doesn't seem out. Like in, in the English ones, and even with a bunch of the Hebrew editions, there's not a good numbering system yet. Okay. Um, a lot of times. So it's not like the Shulchan Rukh where you get the Kitzer deal and some people poo poo it. It's really yes, not, yes, not like that. It's not. I've seen a lot of editors in commentaries where the commentary says, well, it says in Zohar 3, 461b, and the, com- and the editor says, yeah, not in my Zohar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I checked that. That's it's not there, but so. not there. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. So this is just a, a kind of a neat, a neat part that relates to um, some of the things regarding Mashiach. But it says, at that time, the Messiah King will awaken to come out of the Garden of Eden from the place called the Bird's Nest, and will appear in the land of Galilee. And on the day when Messiah goes out there, the whole world will be angered, and all the people in the world will hide in caves and in crevices in stones. And they will not know how to be saved. It is written about that time, and men shall go out into the caves of the rocks and into the holes of the earth from before the terror of the Lord and from the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake mightily the earth. That sounds amazingly like Revelation. I'll continue with the next verse. Before the terror of the Lord is the angering of the whole world, and from the glory of his majesty is the Messiah. When he arises to shake mightily the earth is when the Messiah rises and will appear in the land of Galilee, since this is the first place that was ruined in the Holy Land by Assyria. For this reason, he will appear there before all other places, and from there he will evoke wars upon the entire world. Wow. There's a mention of the Galilee. It's pretty incredible. Where's my water? But yeah, and so here's a perfect example of this, and then it says, just in the next verse, After forty days, when the pillar rises from the earth to heaven in the eyes of the whole world, and the Messiah has appeared, a star will rise up on the east, blazing in all colors, and seven other stars will surround that star, and they will wage war on it from all sides, three times a day for seventy days, 
and all the people in the world will see. Well, that would be intense. So that's what I was talking about. Like, it does get, like, really specific. Like, counting stars, like, counting the amount of days. I mean, it's very interesting, and, and that, that is sort of the flow of, of a lot of this. But, um, so this is another interesting quote out of here. Afterwards, the Messiah will appear, and many nations will gather unto him, and he will make wars throughout the world. At that time, the Creator will awaken all the peoples of the world with his might, and the Messiah King will be known throughout the world, and all the kings in the world will awaken and unite to wage war against him. Hmm. And then it says, uh, several rulers in Israel will revert and return to the Gentiles, and will come with them to wage war against the Messiah King. Then the whole world will darken for 50 days, and many from the people of Israel will die in that darkness. This is why it is written, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth. Hmm. <clears throat> this is another interesting part. So the, the Zohar says, The Messiah King will be called poor, because he has nothing of his own, for he is the Nuhva de Zah, and she is called the Messiah King. However, this is the holy moon above, Nukva de Zah, who has no light of her own except what she receives from the sun, Zah. This is why she is considered poor. The Messiah King, the Nukva, will reign in his dominion, will unite in his place above, and then, as it is written, your king shall come to you, precisely king, since he contains the Nukva above and the Messiah King below. So that's a little complicated, but this also talks about like the Messiah is riding on a donkey and a fowl and the stronghold of the idol worshipping nations to subdue them under him. So just interesting parts so, about so like... So where does the Zohar fall in Orthodox teaching? That's an excellent question. I was going to ask Pete specifically because... It definitely, uh, in one of the things that I was reading, in fact, I think it's in the book Mashiach that's on free on Chabad's website, that the, the only people that have ever attempted to determine when Messiah will come, like with a very specific date, is mystics, like in, in parts of the Zohar and stuff. And the Orthodox community was like totally up in arms when that came out. It was like, that is completely wrong. Like, you guys are crazy. Yeah, yeah and so... There's like every every once in a while I'll come across like a dispute uh, regarding like something mystical and something, you know, that's typically understood from like a Rambam kind of so perspective. Do but what do you, yeah? Is it cool or is it? You know, to the, nowadays Zohar is like complete canon um, in Orthodox Judaism. I think the thing that would be disputed is whether or not you're allowed to read it or whether or not you're able to read it, but it's authority or authenticity isn't isn't really talked about it. I haven't heard. You remember is the something movie, included um, in Yeshiva Stranger studies? Among Us? Oh, yeah. yeah, the guy wants to study so hard. Depending on what kind of people are against studying so Until you reach a certain age right. or yeah, until, I mean because yeah, there's totally like Kabbalah houses or Yeshiva that, that that's definitely part of the curriculum um, but but then there's a thing it's from, from my experience but the, I guess the Modern Orthodox view is it is more on the like of course Zohar is one of the you know many things we have but they're not as clearly gung ho as like some of the big mystical Kabbalistic and okay. basically Hasidic movements. Because when but you say canon, it's sort of like assumed that this would be part of the education. That's right. not what I meant by canon. I just meant it's completely trustworthy, like the Torah. I, oh. I think I was to, to your question though is how much of it um, are is 
uh, has to be interpreted by in the same manner as like here's, yeah. here's how it's understood. Yeah, I don't think they really expecting anybody to to read it straight and then come to their own conclusions. With right. It. Exactly. There's none Because because that's and in fact, then no one would even no one I don't think would have come to any conclusions from Zohar without like the Ari did. Like the Ari did a huge explanation of the Zohar. And he's considered the one who kind of opened the Zohar because mm -hmm. it was locked before. Mm -hmm. Because no one understood it until he explained it, his books. But all his books are locked down. Like, there's not even any English translations of the Ari's books. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but the point is that it's, it, yeah, no one, yeah. no one reads it and then comes to some kind of right. theological place because of the Zohar. It's just yeah. everything in the Zohar is captured. And to further the point, I know that, for example, the Ranban commentaries that Arzbo produces, as far as I've seen, every single time he mentions like, something from Kabbalah or from Zohar, they don't translate it specifically. They just say his comments are beyond the scope of our elucidation. It's in, it's in Hebrew on the other side, right? Um, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, just, yeah, just his, his way it's, you know, yeah. So I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. So they say it's, it's beyond this, the scope of this work at this time. Really interesting aspect mm -hmm. of Judaism that I wasn't really aware of, just because like that's just an, an interesting like thing to have like oh yeah well this is absolutely authoritative but yet like on the other hand no one can really understand it except for like super crazy high level people and then even his works are hard to understand like yeah but that's how, one what's, aspect what's of there, it. but then on the other side like the whole Hasidic movement is like Zohar is everything like well but they wrote all of their own stuff that that you didn't, you don't even really, it seems like you wouldn't even need Zohar in the Hasidic movement because of how many texts have been extracted from those concepts and sort of made to be yeah. Hasidic. It doesn't seem like you would need to read the Zohar yourself. Right. Because you're all the It's all explained and, okay, yeah, okay. And they've, because the whole idea of Hasidism is they're going to explain it to you. So if you were just going to read it yourself, you'd need a Hasidic commentary of some sort. Or a rabbi. Right. Yeah. Ideally. Right. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Well, yeah, so, I mean, the, this was another interesting thing. Um, it says, in 66 years will the Messiah King be revealed in the land of Galilee, and it is the Messiah, son of Joseph. Hence, the place of his revelation is the Galilee, the lot of Joseph. Hmm. So I don't know what, again, like, I don't know what where this was saying, like, 66 years from now. And there's even, I remember reading something where someone was saying, like, you know, you will, you will find the secret... 30, uh, 33 from now, and like what the uh, what the actual rabbi was saying, come to find out, Nachmanides sort of interpreted that to to be thirty three verses from where he was quoting it was actually like the proof text for what it was. So like sometimes they play interesting like riddles like that. Um, that was in regard to like the uh, explanation of what um, the goat for Azazel is. Yeah. I think. It was the it was Ibn Ezra who said like, this is uh, this is very deep and and you'll know what this is in in 33, and then Nachmanides came along and was like, well, 33 verses later it talks about a goat demon, so clearly Azazel is like a goat demon. Uh, yeah, interesting. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I don't know if that's what they're doing there or while you're reading this. Stuff. Yeah. So this one talks about Messiah, son of David. So this is just another little verse here. Uh, at that time, the Messiah king will awaken 
The Messiah, son of David, who extends from the middle line and hence his time to appear, has come along with his correction. And all the children of Israel will gather in their places to go to Jerusalem. For, that, for then begins the ingathering of the exiles, and they will be gathered in their places to go to Jerusalem. But they will not go before the arrival of the fourth correction, which is the correction of the Malchut, that will receive the illumination of the three lines within her, and then all of Israel will gather and come to Jerusalem. Hmm. So if there's some of these parts that, I mean, like I said, there's it probably does additional explanation, but I just was hitting on some interesting parts where it mentions specifically like Messiah, son of Joseph, Messiah, son of David. Mm -hmm. It's just very interesting. And that was... Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and this was just another thing that kind of confused me a little bit, is so Rabbi Chaim Biddle, I mentioned this at one point, like another class ago, he was sort of a student of Shimon Bar Yochai, if I understand that. No, Chaim Biddle is um, the Arizal's chief student. Oh, right, okay, yeah, yeah. Thank you, yes. Um, anyway, he, based on his understanding of like the Zohar's description of the son of Joseph and the son of David in regard to Messiah, like he his quote was that um, well he had like a really interesting way that he determined like why why there was two or oh sorry that was a different rabbit anyway um, so he says in his book of visions that Messiah then. Yosef and Messiah ben David are only terms reflecting two aspects of a single man is, was his understanding of that which I thought was just interesting because when you read some of the mentions of the different Messiah, son of Joseph, Messiah son of David, they, they are very distinct characters in like the Midrashic sense like when you're telling the story they are obviously right. two different people right. you know, and one resurrects the other and right. all right. surrounding the war the war of Gog and Magog but that was another interesting thing because it was elsewhere that says that that doesn't actually need to happen. Like it's not necessarily a a definite that the war of Gog and Magog would happen. It's like that's why we're wanting Mashiach right now because we could avoid that by doing everything that we're supposed to do to bring Mashiach, which I thought was like kind of kind of encouraging actually. Um, anyway. So this was a, another cool part from the Zohar, because I, I think this is just a, a really special thing to just enhance our looking forward to, but it says, at the time of Messiah, the Creator will reveal profound secrets in the Torah. Uh, this is the quote from the, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As it is written, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them. So the Zohar is very specific on the fact that, yeah, that's Jeremiah 31, the famous um, 34. New Covenant passage. 31, 34. Yeah. But anyway, that, I thought that was just really, it's a really cool thing. And there was somewhere else, yeah, right here. When it is near the days of Messiah, even infants in the world will find the secrets of the wisdom and know the ends and calculations of redemptions in it. Mm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So no uh, angel tongue thing. That's it. Boop. Nope, you get to keep it. That's right. So um, that that does complete like some of the the things that were a direct reference from the Zohar. I also kind of compiled just for my own like searchable sake because it's hard to search on Chabad. But like they have this guy um, Rabbi Jacob or Yaakov Emmanuel Shochet is uh, Shochet, yeah. 
he wrote a great book called Mashiach, and it is uh, it's available for free on Chabad's website. Hmm. Um, I kind of compiled it and made my own ebook in iBooks so that like <laughs> I could highlight and stuff. But it's uh, it is really really fantastic because Rambam kind of does a you know he he lays a lot of it out in his book of Wars and Kings and stuff like that. But like this this just um, extract. Uh, uh, brings in a lot of other texts and stuff. I mean, if you look at one footnote, he is quoting from like every book and more that you could possibly think of. So he, he gives a really good perspective on it. Um, so, so this is a current guy? Yeah, yeah, current yeah in fact, he is, I think he's still alive, right? Yeah, yeah he has some videos. He's been, he's been around for a while. I can't remember. I don't think he's American. He I don't is, think he is. Yeah, he's like somewhere British. But yeah. But uh, I know this came up at one point, but... Um, it is, I mean, just, just to reiterate, that it is absolutely, I mean, the belief in the coming Mashiach and that the Messianic redemption will happen is like top shelf belief in Judaism. And I, which is just helpful to remind ourselves of, because sometimes, I don't know, I, I was a little confused in the early stages of this class before I was like doing research in, into how important it was within Judaism, just based yeah. on like how often it was referenced in the Talmud and stuff like that. but. Apparently, I mean, it's it is top shelf for sure. I think if you're coming out of Christianity proper and you bump into Judaism, you have to really wonder why do these people hope for and in their own lives try and hasten the coming of the Mashiach more than all these Gentiles who are all about the Messiah. You know, their their focus is just so overwhelmingly. Beautiful. That it's. I mean, it's just. It's un, It's just unbelievable. And after everything they've been through or throughout all these millennia, that that's still what they're waiting for. Mm -hmm. It is. I think it, it puts Christianity to shame. Yeah, yeah. And we've we've often said that Christianity wouldn't necessarily have an idea of where specifically in the Torah and the Tanakh, you would find Messianic references, boy, they, there is no question about it in Judaism. They know exactly where they are, and they know exactly what they're talking about. And it's just interesting, because he actually has, he has a whole chapter here that, like, just each line, basically, from Rambam, like, restoration of the Beit HaMikdash, the ingathering of the exiles of Israel. And then he just lists all the proof texts for that. Not just from the Tanakh, but from all these other books. Too. Oh well, no. This these specifically are from the Tanakh, which are kind of cool to read because some of them you're kind of like, I, I just didn't, I don't know. I, I guess I didn't really. Like, where did you get that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really it's really cool. I was looking for the yeah. So his, so he gets uh, Isaiah twenty six is where he he picks up on the resurrection of the dead. Ezekiel thirty seven resurrection and Daniel twelve resurrection. Okay. That's kind of cool. Ezekiel um, thirty seven is a pretty famous one regarding that, though. Yeah. The Valley of Opening the chapter. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, okay, so I, I highlighted a couple things in here um, because I thought this was just very interesting. Resurrection of the dead is, you know, one of the like fundamental principles of faith, as he puts it, Article thirteen. Uh, distinct from that of the messianic redemption, it will occur after the redemption the very last event of the Messianic era, and that's according to the Zohar 1, 139a. 
thus in a way distinct from it. Which I thought was very interesting that they, he places a heavy emphasis in Sudas and Zohar on the resurrection. Well, that, uh, that's what the apostolic scriptures teach as well. Really? At the end of? The judging of the... Of the uh, Seems like um, Trump and Christ will rise. They'll meet together and everything was fine. It seems like it's an issue of coming back. The dead and Messiah rise. This is the resurrection. Of everybody. Of everybody. And that's at the end. And that's when he judges the sheep and the goats. Mm. Mm. Okay. So only the believers are resurrected? The dead and the Messiah. Mm. Correct. And uh, Revelation, John uh, sort of alludes to that by saying, this is the second death. Those that, you know, like, yeah. We've got, got two resurrections, for sure. Yeah. Well, and, I, and, and the Apostolic Scriptures teach the same thing. At the end of the Messianic days, it's like, everybody out of the pool. Right. Okay. Yeah, and that's... that's Don't swim. I've, I've been trying to, to just be, like, I don't know, as we've been studying a lot of this stuff, I've been trying to be, like, as, as careful as possible to, like, maintain the the author's integrity, because obviously the authors of everything that we're studying as of right now wouldn't have believed in Yeshua, and, and you know, and that. But that's the thing, though. Like that, that is okay. It's okay to just be looking at their text to be like, all right, well, what do they say about Mashiach? Sure. Like, is there similarities? You know, sure. so far, I think, at least from my perspective, I have found so many similarities. It's been really cool. Everyone, <laughs> if you do a, a search for Zohar Yeshua. It's actually really funny. There are so many, well, there is at least one specific guy that I was reading that like literally takes like the entire New Testament and is like, look, it's all in the Zohar. <laughs> it's really, really funny, actually. But it's actually a little interesting. He, he pulls out this verse in Colossians and he's like, 10 sephirot right here, boom. And just like puts like each sephirot like right at the end of each of the lines. It was. It does mention the word specifically. Each of the ten words. Anyway, it's just kind of interesting. But <laughs> nevertheless, this is a cool one. I once one time I think someone was mentioning like, you know, obviously like some something like that miracles and signs were not necessarily a mark of Mashiach at right. all. But um, in fact, Rambam says that. Well, apparently, according to Zohar two eight a. The, it, it is a distinguishing mark of the time of Mashiach that in the time that Mashiach will awaken, many signs and miracles will, will occur in the world. Not in my Zohar. <laughs> I just thought that was, it was an interesting Well, it's there. just not that he performs them, necessarily. Right. Right. Okay. right. It is not, that was yeah, specifically yeah, a general statement that they will, they will be extant. Rambam's statement was, focus was, you don't need a person to perform signs and miracles to make him the Messiah. This is true because uh, Judaism teaches that there have been many righteous tzaddikim now through the ages who have been miracle workers as well. Sure. Well, well and Yeshua told the disciples that they could also perform miracles. It wasn't Correct. just centered on him. And with uh, when John asked from prison, "Are you the guy, or are we supposed to be looking for somebody else?" His response was not all miracles. It was, look at what's going on. Look at what you see. And then he named some of the things that was going on, including uh, talking about poor people and other being fed. And so it's not just miracles. Yeah. Well, so here's a really interesting question. It is very clear 
in, let's see, so this, let me just grab the, the reference here, from Sanhedrin 98 and Pesachim 54a, uh, that there is definitely, that Mashiach was definitely created before the world cool. and has existed since then. Mm-hmm. So when I, when I had read that, um, just the interesting thing about that is our, our thing is about like, well, it's, it's okay and sufficient to just be looking forward to Mashiach coming at some other point, like at, at down the road. He hasn't come yet, almost, you know? But like the, the messianic view that some of us believe is like, well, no, it's really important to recognize who it is right now. And I think Joshua had brought up a couple times like how important, you know, the identity of Messiah was. But I just thought like, an acknowledgement from Judaism that Messiah exists right now, like and has existed before the foundation of the world, it kind of does beg the question, like, well, is it not important then, like, who that is? Like, I because if you're just waiting for for something down the road, as opposed to like thinking of someone who has existed and exists currently, like that that to me, there's two different ideas of that in, in my head at least. Does that, does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. I, I think so, but uh, again, I think it goes back to like the Zohar has to be interpreted as to what it means. So well, this, is, these are Tom. Uh, well, you, well, even there, yeah. for example, um, where are we saying that physically there is this guy who existed? Well, so it says the, that... The soul of Messiah. Like well, yeah, Messiah. so this refers, yeah, this refers to the principle and the soul of Mashiach. Okay. Um, and then it does refer to Mashiach as a human being, too. Um, so the only qualifications about his origins is that he's a descendant of David through the lineage of his son Solomon uh, his righteousness will increase continually from his birth onwards and by virtue of his deeds he will merit sublime levels of spiritual perfection right and, and so I think your, your question which is good um, is because I mean, I've, I've wondered about that as well they say he's been existent ever since the creation um, and, and then why 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 is that no one talks about that? It's like you don't care about the fact that he's here now or something like that. Right. But but if it's more of the soul because souls are eternal as opposed to bodies which are not, um, then yeah, I have no problem saying that the soul of Messiah was was there from the beginning even before any other souls were were created perhaps, and that it's existed and, and it's uh, and, and it's you know has a, a very spiritual. Um, point, but not a, not a physical point in time, if you know what I mean. I, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, okay. That makes sense. It is very interesting, though, to think about that, because it, that, would, that would definitely indicate, well, at least I would feel like that is proof that is, like, opposing the idea that, like, you know, there could be, like, there's a Mashiach in every generation, just because, like, if this, if, if Mashiach's soul was created before the world, like literally before life and everything, like in Genesis 1, well then that seems to be on a level of, of creation like far beyond everything that came after that. Well, it is, and that would make him the preeminent one, and that's what Colossians is talking about. Right, that's so... The Targum just talks about Targum, um, John. yeah, about um, the Memra and the uh, Versus the way John talks about the uh, the logos existing, you know, and the whole um, 
first part of John. Mm. Well, the Targumim go on to make this really neat equivalent of... Yeah, it's Anaphos, it's just not Jacob. Yeah, it's Anaphos, that's right. Um, so there's a really neat correlation there that um, brings out a lot more depth. And, and they use this Aramaic word, Memra, to, um, to expound upon that. I mean, there's some really cool teachings about that. Um, Messianics have chosen to chort that as well. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't, you don't have the deep teaching because you need to get a memory. Oh, yeah. You know, that kind of <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I just really don't. I, I, maybe I don't understand like some of the some of the, the way that this all fits together. The way the the targum renders it, though, it 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 gives. It's really neat how the targumim, trend, you know, which are paraphrases in in a sense, almost like commentary commentary slash paraphrasing. Of you know from the Hebrew to Aramaic, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Um, but uh, it, it, the way this particular one is rendered, it it, it does go into uh, detail about how the Memra existed before all of creation, and it's you know a lot of Messianics pick up on that too, and they really you know it's that kind of that'll preach, brother, kind of kind of stuff, and it's. And it's speaking directly to uh, the soul of Mashiach. Okay. What was the reference for that Talmud uh, passage? Uh, yes, there's a couple. It was um, 798, and then you got Pesachim 54a. And then there's even a couple parts of that was from Bereshit Rabbah. You've got like Pirkei de Eliezer, Hachama on Zohar 27b. Kind of middle and something else. There's a, there's a bunch of things that he references in just that little part that I was reading, but it's it's just interesting because then he follows right after that with like the whole idea of Mashiach in every generation. But I don't know. He kind of says like I don't know. Let me just read this and see if like and if you guys can help me understand this. So this is this guy um, Rabbi Emmanuel. You want to see if we can spoken. help you understand? Yes. Yes. Okay. So any time is a potential time for the coming of Mashiach. This does not mean, however, that at the appropriate time he will suddenly emerge from heaven to appear on earth. On the contrary, Mashiach is already on earth, a human being of great saintly status, a tzaddik, appearing and existing in every generation. And this is a quote from a commentary on Ruth Rav, Rabbi Ovadia of Barturnura, who says, In every generation is born a progeny of Judah fit to be Israel's Mashiach. Oh, now I understand your question more. Um, so the idea, so if that's the case, and same soul, same guy. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Sort of. So so if, if there's if there's a physical candidate at every point in time on the clock, yeah. and that but, soul could inhabit any one of those individuals. But they they have a soul. So unless unless it's like the Messiah's soul. Is, you can't have it both ways. Though. Additional. I don't know that one. That's an interesting. Well, I, I I don't understand it. We can move on. That's fine. Um, we that that's would be a great cool. question. Just to, if if anyone has any insight. I mean, if you find anything. That that's just it's an interesting, interesting question. Okay, so. Uh, again, this it goes into how important it is not to try to calculate the date of Mashiach's coming, and where then is that, um, where is that mentioned? 
Oh. Yeah, it's mentioned in Zohar Chadash. Uh, it's mentioned in Shemot Rabbah, Sanhedrin 98, Jerusalem Tanait 1 1. Isn't there a, a curse on the bones of anyone who tries to catch something? It? Something, something, yeah, something people really bad. Try to do it, which is why they did it, I guess, is another question, but it's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. It's like, let's rebuild Tyre. Come on. Yeah, it's yeah, not, not good. Never, definitely want to never try to do that. Um, so it's another just really special thing that which again you can you can make your own correlations to this later, but like the quintessential thing about hastening the coming of Mashiach is repentance. Um, Teshuvah. I mean, it says it in so many ways. They they translate like or they they use Deuteronomy thirty verse two. They use um, today if you will listen to his voice, Psalm ninety five seven, as proof texts of that. The, they use like the whole watchman of the night from Isaiah 21. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they have a lot about how important Teshuvah is, which, I mean, of course, we, we can, you can kind of get that from, from Torah and, and from the sure. prophets as well, but it's just, it's definitely reiterated throughout other places within um, the Jewish mindset here. Can you make a comment on that, which is really cool? I love the fact that it's repentance that brings Messiah and not um, evangelism if you will. So in other words, I could be dead wrong in who I really believe Messiah is, but as long as I'm actively in the process of repenting, who cares? I'm, I'm, I'm hastening the Messiah. Even if I'm wrong, I'm, the, the real one's coming by, by my actions. Exactly. Well, yeah. I wouldn't say Christianity thinks evangelism will bring Messiah faster. Truly. Until the word, word is preached into all the world, he won't come. Yeah. That's why, that's why the Bible translators exist. It's, yeah, it's kind of a, it's at least in some circles of Christianity, it's a pretty heavy yes, it's emphasis. It's, well, like, regardless, it's still a you, can't, you can't talk about it monolithically. You, you're absolutely right. That is a huge like, paradigm. Yeah. It's a grand Well, and that's, we, we were talking about this like one night, and that, that's, the way that you just described that was sort of where I found myself right now. Like, I, I had mentioned this in one of our classes, but like, I just feel like the whole idea of Mashiach is like right now, since he's not a king in Israel right now, that my my only thing to do with that is like all internal. Like I have to, that means something to me specifically. Like it, it's, I think it's, I'm not at a point right now where I could use any type of measuring stick to determine where other people are in terms of their belief in Messiah or anything like that. But I know for me specifically, like I just feel a personal responsibility of of the fact that we, I, I need to be repentant and I need to be hastening his coming and like all of that needs to be enhanced somehow and it's all enhanced for me specifically by my belief in Yeshua like placing you know, a face of that name basically a face that you've never seen an orthodox face <laughs> yeah. laser brody that's a good face it's a good face and a really good voice um Anything else? There is maybe. Let me just find if there was uh, one or two other things. This is almost almost done here. Um, this is just a good encouragement, straight up encouragement from one uh, Zohar one four a. This is just all about like awaiting the coming of Shia. I'm assuming that's at the beginning. Who among you awaits every day the light that will that will shine forth, um, i.e., awaiting the coming of Mashiach every day, when the king shall be glorified and called king over all the kings in the world, 
He who does not look forward to this every day, he does not await the salvation every day. In this world, he has no share here. This is the concept of, did you look forward to the salvation? This is why the sages instituted to say in the 18 blessings, mm -hmm. for we hope for your salvation every day, okay. literally all the day. So the commentary of Rabbi Chaim Biddle cited there in Or Chachma, uh, and then Peretz Chaim, and then it says, uh, when saying for we hope for your salvation all the day, have in mind that man is asked after death, will you, did you look forward to salvation? And those that eagerly awaited the redemption every day, as it is said, a horde of salvation, from Isaiah 30, 33, 6, which refers to those who eagerly awaited salvation every day. Hmm. That's got to be tough for the Christians who profess a faith to Messiah and feel that, oh, I'm saved already, so, and, and they may not feel like they have to have that eager anticipation thereof from this point forward. That would be a sad thing indeed, because yeah. it's certainly, I think if that, if there's one major theme that comes out of the Apostolic Scriptures, it's definitely like, it's tomorrow, like, get ready. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's very, very immediate. Um, but yeah, good point. There's uh, also the idea that, you know, we just talked about the repentance um, hastens the coming of Messiah, and that, you know, it works both ways, that failure to perform mitzvot and um, failure to live a life of emunah and um, failure to repent actually extends the exile and delays the coming of Messiah. Mm -hmm. it, it, so if you, if you think about it in terms of, wow, I did whatever, when you're taking account of your soul each day, when, and when you realize that, then that should inspire a whole new set of prayers because you're like, wow, am I doing this actually delayed the coming of Messiah. This actually um, is, is helping to destroy the world that we're supposed to be repairing. This actually created um, like confinement for sparks that I should have elevated. And if, if that doesn't make you be like, want to redouble your efforts, then you're, you're probably you know, not in the right place spiritually, I guess. But um, but that's also some, some, yeah, something to consider. Mm -hmm. Okay, so two final things. The one is, this is in um, the Zohar, talking about specifically Mashiach needing to die, which I thought this was just very interesting, because I think it was your dad, actually, or someone someone said, um, I forgot what this was, in our, in our class, that said, where in the Tanakh does it say that like Mashiach has to die? You know, That's which a is a great question. Great question, actually. I, I have no idea <laughs> the answer to that question. But, however, it is very clear in the Zohar that says, um, because this lower plateau lacks manifestations of godliness, this Mashiach must die. And then he will remain dead until this plateau receives life from the higher plateau, at which point he will rise and come to life. Mm. So I just thought that was interesting. Mm. And then the uh, very last thing was just, uh, going back to Rabbi Chaim Biddle and him saying that Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David are basically like two aspects of one person, it is sort of in this commentary uh, that the battle of Gog and Magog is pretty complex. And so I'll just read this little snippet 
Um, this is from Rabbi Shmuel of Sachachev. And this was, I guess, from Vayigash 56.77 is when I guess he said this. But he said, the battle of Gog and Magog is another of the complex issues of the Messianic redemption. In fact, an authoritative tradition from the disciples of the Baal Shem Tov state that the extraordinary length of the present severe galut has already made up for the troubles of that battle and the trauma of the death of Mashiach ben Yosef so that these will no longer occur. Hmm. So, basically, you know, the Baal Shem Tov, some of the, his disciples were saying, like, I don't know, we, we, we did that to Kuhn. The Battle of Gog and Magog doesn't need to happen anymore. The, the repairing has, has taken place. And they are definitely acknowledging as well the trauma of the death of Mashiach ben Yosef, which at this point, whenever they were saying that, they would have acknowledged that part of Messiah, one of the two, or however they understood it at that time, had already died. Hmm. Which was interesting. That's pretty cool too. That's not what they were saying. Yeah, he says has already made up for the troubles of that battle and the trauma of the death of Mashiach ben Yosef so that these will no longer occur. Right, they'll no longer occur. Well, it, oh, the, saying, you're saying they're, they're saying both of those are in the future and they won't have to happen in there. Right. They always link Gog and Magog and the death of Joseph because they happen at the same time. And they're saying that we don't have to have the battle. Oh, I see what you mean. Right. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think we would hear it if the Baal Shem Tov's disciples were saying Mashiach ben Yosef already came and died. Maybe there's a problem or something about that. Probably. <laughs> All right. Well, that was great. I think there's a lot of stuff in there that is consistent with some of the things that we read in the Apostolic Scriptures. And I find that to be encouraging and scary. Well, and it's just very interesting that we would have to, that, that the consistency comes in like the esoteric, as opposed to, because that's the biggest point, is like, right, like we are talking about like the Talmud. Well, obviously, if this was a big enough point that the, the New Testament or that the idea of Yeshua was important to Judaism, clearly it would have been in the Talmud of all places, you know? But it doesn't, I mean, if anything, it sort of dings Yeshua. Uh, and so I, I, I do find that kind of odd that like the most consistency that we find in just some standard things that we might believe and like and, and trying to look for consistency in what does Judaism believe that's sort of similar is in the, the very esoteric type of texts. Well not not just there though. I mean uh, just, the, death, but the the atonement uh, brought by the suffering and or death of the righteous is more found in the Midrash than it is in anywhere else. You know, so where where do we see that Messiah must die? Well, it's right there in the midrash. Well, I guess I struggled with that one because I didn't I didn't think it mentioned specifically Mashiach. I thought it just talked about righteous. Well, it does talk about the righteous, right? And it mentions Moshe, hmm. right? Yeah. And uh, you know, he says uh, in one of them, I can't remember which one where it was. Um, I will take uh, a great one. I'll take a great one from among you. And he Exodus will tell yeah. I just don't know where it is. Hmm. Anyway, good job. Good job. Good job. All right. We're going to run through this real quick here. Rotate, rotate.
Half quarter, about pace. That's right. <laughs> so the, uh, the the question that's been coming up for me uh, here is. Uh, you mean personally or yeah, it's personal. from, from external sources? Personally. Personally, the question that's been coming up. Um, like Taylor asked, you know, why Yeshua? You know, why? Why would? Why do you believe that Yeshua is the Messiah? And you know, the the question should have an answer. Why do you believe that Yeshua is the Messiah? The parallels are just too strong. The parallels between what and what? Between his life and 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 what I see and the Tanakh as far as. Um, a, a person providing it um, atonement and, and, and being that redemption figure the parallels are just incredibly too, they're, too strong they're stellar yeah. yeah okay why do you believe that Yeshua is the Messiah? wow besides what he said besides what he said? Besides what he said, I don't know if I can add much to that, but I mean, a lot of it I just take on faith. But basically, what Jonathan said. What about you? For me specifically, I'd say because of the Gospels and their alignment with the Tanakh, which is, is really cool, but then just also like the life of, of Yeshua is a life that was like e extremely inspiring. And on, on a, so many levels, and, and specifically, like, looking for, like, a Rebbe type of figure, like, someone that you would look up to, someone you would study often, you would quote often, like, that is, like, Yeshua for me, cause, because of the Gospels, because of their teachings, because of, even, even just, like, the, the subtle things, like, not necessarily being completely conformed to, like the mainstream doctrine, you know, even just like shaking the, the fact that he would sort of shake things up a little bit, like, oh, okay, well, you don't have to do that, you know. It just he had this such an amazing authority um, from what we read in the Gospels, and the Gospels uh, cross-referencing in the Tanakh, and not necessarily finding anything that would would that the Tanakh would overturn in the Gospels solidify in my mind their their validity there's and their authenticity. Yeah, there's a consistency there. And since that authenticity is there, then I therefore like look to, all right, well, what, is, what is this talking about? It's definitely talking about Yeshua as Messiah and that he accomplished a mission while he was here and is still yet to come and accomplish a mission. Okay, so for the three of you then, without the apostolic writings, you got nothing. You definitely don't have a name. Well, specifically the Gospels. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's where all the account is. You, you wouldn't know anything without it. Mm -hmm. And that's that's actually one thing that I will admit is the weakest. In my opinion, there's like three weak points that I have if I acknowledge it really with any clout. Um, issue is personality and identity. One of those is, I'm, I'm reading a biography right now on Napoleon. It's like that big, right? This that's guy, almost as big as him. Exactly, right. <laughs> And then, and then, Sorry. And then so and, short, and short even joke. if you extend the you know the book of Acts, for example, or or uh, other parts of the New Testament that 
kind of give more to light on, on acts uh, or you know, works of, of Yeshua, there's very little ink that was spilled or that we have today uh, about him, about his acts, about his his life compared to Napoleon, for example. Um, so that I have very little to go off of. And on top of that is baggage and, and detoxing which has to happen. So that's like one, one of the weakest things is I'm putting so much emphasis on someone that really there's not a lot of details to begin with on on his life you obviously have um, and, and, it, and, it, and if he is my Rebbe I mean you can read biographies you can study with the Rebbe you know that Rebbe honestly I don't I feel like the you know the the teachings that Yeshua gives on, on Musa are like half a chapter and then I can read volumes from the Chofetz Chaim mm -hmm. on just evil speech mm -hmm. not only not, not everything else in the yeah. Musa topics so of I feel course, like the Chofetz Chaim had a whole lot more time Sure, true. The age of 33, once you end, is, is an earlier time. That's, that's an earlier time. Um, yeah. Joe Gordon's response to the question of why do you believe in Yeshua? Uh, why do you believe in Yeshua? Is that he was born again. He had an experience that changed his life. He mm -hmm. met the living God. So, I don't think that uh, and he changed his life. Um, I don't think that we need to simply go on faith. I, I would say that um, it does not take any more faith to believe the Talmud is written and valid than the apostolic scriptures. There is ample evidence that it was written down and it was uh, factual. There's actually more physical, physical, not spiritual or religious, but physical evidence that the apostolic scriptures uh, are valid and historically reliable than we have of Shakespeare, Homer, or any of the other books that we say were written and so forth. So, but uh, <clears throat> that's good. That's good. Good answers. So uh, the biggie for me, though, as we've been going through this, is the resurrection. And again, I'm reading the apostolic scriptures that describe to me what happened. But I also have the writings outside the apostolic writings that say what happened. And I have no contradictory evidence of what happened from even detractors. <clears throat> Do you have any, any people who say that the resurrection is important outside the New Testament? Do I have anyone who would say that the resurrection is important outside the New Testament or outside the apostolic writings? Because it seems like that resurrection is a big deal comes from Paul. Uh, no. This, that the resurrection is a big deal. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and read that text so it doesn't keep beeping. Um, the fact that the resurrection is important is coming from me. I know, but you got it from somewhere, right? Or is it just this is your opinion for why we should? Yeah. Okay, this is just your opinion. Yeah. 
Well, let's not put it that way. It makes it really sound, you know, it's like, well, let's just go home. I mean, it's only my opinion. Um, I've been I've been challenged over the past several weeks here with, I mean, you know, the, the bombshell a couple of weeks ago was, if the guy dies, he can't be the Messiah. Well, rats, I always thought he was the Messiah. He looked like the Messiah. There's so much that lines up. He could have been the Messiah. But he can't be the Messiah because he died. Well, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> he rose. And I keep coming back to all of the arguments, you know, liar, lunatic, liar, lunatic, Lord, Lord, liar, or Lord, right? Um, you know, and all these different arguments. And, you know, the bottom line comes down to what makes him special? Was he just another Rebbe? guy died even if he said everything he said and did everything he did he did not do we've admitted he did not do what the Messiah needs to do name as many things as you want that the Messiah will do he didn't do those did he have illusions of being the Messiah? Especially when you look at the Isaiah passage where he says the lame walk, the blind see, the poor have the gospel preached to them. This right out of Isaiah. Great. That's one. But when we talk about atonement, atonement as we're reading right now in the past several passages that we've done in, in the portions, Hashem makes it very clear. Unless you do this exactly right, unless you do it exactly what I said, in exactly the right way, you will not be atoned for. It will not work. Your sins, your iniquities will still be upon you. And uh, he just invalidates it. And I see validation here, and I see an, an answer to the fact that he died, and I see something that I cannot ignore. And when I try and broach this topic with others, I, I hear, no, it, it can't, be, uh, can't be proven. Uh, it's, uh, it's only, you know, you've got you to gotta believe in the apostolic writings. And if you don't, and nobody does except Christians, so, you know, I don't. So therefore, we're done. There was no resurrection. Well, you know, that's not true. And uh, Peter Kreeft has, uh, has a pretty cool layout here, and I just want to walk through it real quick. Um, he says that we only have to uh, agree on two things. One is the uh, that the uh, apostolic writings exist. That the apostolic writings we have them. That they that they are here that they do exist, and secondly, that Christians exist. I think we can agree on that. And by Christians, I'm going to put that in quotes, especially for, uh, for those in Gastonia who might be listening in. So that includes people in this room? Yeah, I, I would say that that includes, this is not your normal concert B-flat Christians, but rather those that believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. That's what I'm talking about that here. sharp Christians. That's sharp Christians. So, Kreeft asks, 
Get, get this. What theory about what happened in Jerusalem on that first Passover since then can account for all the data that we have? We have a lot of data. We don't have just the data in the apostolic writings. We have writings by a whole lot of other people, non-believers, believers, people who claim Christ, people who don't claim Christ, heretics. We have a lot of writings, and it's all out there. He says there's only five possibilities. Number one, That uh, I'm not going to do it in Greek. Let's go to Yeshua Rose. Now I like that one personally, but we're not going to we're not going to taint the pie. Rose by any other name. Thank you. Thank you. That uh, he didn't rise. And the apostles were duped. They got faked out. Twelve people is a lot of people to fake out. Oh, no, no, it's a lot more than twelve. Oh. That uh, number three, he didn't rise, but that the apostles made a myth. About him. Number four, that he didn't rise, and the apostles deceived everyone. How that different? How is that different from three? Um, well, that they hallucinated uh, and thought that he rose and made a myth about it. Thought, thereby the, deceiving the, the, the fourth is no, well, the fourth is actually. he actually died and didn't rise but then they lied yes the, what was three the third is like they thought he, he never existed to begin with or right no. well he, he may have existed but it was it was that they they built this myth about what he did that basically the uh, there was the Yeshua who didn't perform miracles, who didn't rise from the dead, who didn't, uh, he wasn't a Rebbe, and then they wrote these Gospels that made it sound like... That sounds pretty deceptive. Uh, I, to me, I think when I see myth, I think of, there was, it's an open-ended thing, and eventually it becomes accepted as fact. Like exactly, it, and, it, right. and that's so, one, of the, one of the arguments against it. Okay. But you can't make a myth in one generation. The no. myth to become believed as fact, as it is now by Christians, and you know, and written down as fact, has to take multi-generations well, before the myth becomes fact. And that's what you see with actual mythology, like Greek or, or Norse. Exactly. Or it takes hundreds of years for it to become considered fact. Spoken like a true Welshman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like tomorrow's Woden's <laughs> day. Okay. <laughs> And then the fifth one, he didn't die. He just swooned. This is the whole swooned. Yeah, he swooned. He, he actually uh, he got beat up by the Romans, uh, lost a lot of blood, and he passed out. 
And he revived when they put him on a cold slab of rock. Right? So that's the swoon theory. So according to Kreeft, huh? <laughs> according to Kreeft, there are no other explanations. Who is this guy? Peter Kreeft. Yeah, that's his name, but who is he? He's a theologian. Okay. I've never heard the name before tonight, so I just, I'm, I'm curious. He's a great author. You should check him out. Interesting. Okay. So Kreeft says there's only these five. There are no other explanations that account for the data, for what really happened. I find it interesting that none of these claim he never existed. Well, right, because of the data. You can't. Exactly. We have data that he did. Exactly. And we have data far beyond the apostolic writings. So, um, so he says, if we can refute all these other theories, two through five, since these are the only possible explanations, if you can refute these, then he did rise. You agree? So he starts with the easy one first, that Yeshua didn't die. Can you refute it? Romans are really good at what they do. Romans are good at what they do, yeah. Um, he's, he's got that as number one on his list. It's not possible that he could have survived crucifixion because they were trained killers. Good. Second? He well, doesn't have witnesses. Oh, eyewitnesses. eyewitnesses. He does have eyewitnesses, yes. Um, for example, John was an eyewitness at the cross and saw blood and water coming out. And didn't break his legs. Oh, right. That's number two. Didn't break his legs. Yeah. And I guess if he did survive, you expect him to roll after being so wounded and exhausted to roll stones away and take care of himself for all this right. time. Right, right, good. Yeah. So uh, in his uh, half dead, staggering, sick man look, how was it that he claimed to have conquered death and uh, transformed all these guys into confident oh, people? Yeah. Right? You did, oh, come on. I had my wisdom teeth pulled out two weeks ago. I'm still complaining about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and there's also, to what Jonathan was saying about him opening it, they also sealed, like they actually put some kind of thing between the rock and the other rock, and there was no physical way to move it from the inside. I, yeah. Okay, so how did he get out of the tomb? That's a good one. Yeah, right. Got how that. How did he get out of the wraps? How did he get out of the wraps? He was uh, encased in winding sheets. I mean, this is the little Houdini deal. Yeah. And if you'll recall, the text says that they were amazed that those were still wrapped. Hmm. Yeah, I guess one more is the people wrapping them, you think they would notice faint heart beating or... Breathing, yeah, yeah, exactly breathing. right. How so did that... Jack Bauer. Yeah, I'm Jack Bauer's good. You know, gets <laughs> you guys all saw the illusionist. Can he, can he, can he, he drink the stuff shot? that stopped their heartbeat? Like down. Yeah. There you go. So how did he get out of the tomb? Yeah. How did he half dead and beat up get past the guards? Yeah. He's probably got stuff growing in his. How did he move too. the stone? I think we're done at one. He couldn't possibly. <laughs> okay. The next one he takes on, this is the second easiest one, is uh, that it was a conspiracy. So 
that would be number four, that the apostles <laughs> deceived everybody. Blaise Pascal, everybody know who he is? Mathematician, right? That's a key game, right? Oh, yeah? Yeah. Right. Have you read the Penzies? Very cool. You can get it uh, for about two ninety nine on your iPad. Um, but his, uh, his book, Penzies, is, uh, is extraordinary. Um, so here's a quote from, from Pascal. The hypothesis that the apostles were knaves, deceivers, is quite absurd. Follow it out to the end and imagine these 12 men meeting after Jesus' death and conspiring to say that he is risen from the dead. This means attacking all the powers that be. The human heart is singularly susceptible to fickleness, to change, to promises, and to bribery. One of them had only to deny his story under these inducements, or still more, because of possible imprisonment, tortures, and death, and they would all have been lost. Follow that out. There's the mathematician telling you, just do the math. Impossible. Well, and except for John, weren't they all... John was the only one that was not murdered. Yeah. However, he was tortured because he was placed in boiling oil before he was sent to a salt island. Right. Which must have been. But they all kept. But they all. They never changed. Not one of them. In fact, it is a historical fact that no one, weak or strong, saint or sinner, Christian or heretic, ever confessed freely or under pressure, bribe or even torture, that the whole story of the resurrection was a fake. A lie, a deliberate deception. Not one person in all of history. Even those who broke under torture, denied Christ, and worshipped Caesar never let the cat out of the bag that was all fake. They all died. Never happened. The big question he asks in that one is, why would they have become Christians if they knew it was a lie? The disciples' character is another argument that he uses against this. Um, they were simple, they were honest, common peasants, they weren't cunning, they weren't even lawyers, which is pretty good to look at. Um, their sincerity was proved by their words and their deeds. Nothing proves sincerity like martyrdom. Their lives changed from fear to faith, despair to confidence, confusion to certitude, cowardice to steadfast boldness under threat and persecution. Can a known lie cause such a transformation in people? Probably not. I don't know. I'm having little fingers chopped off, that might encourage... Never mind. Well, his, history on other stuff you know, would say that it couldn't have been a lie. Like, people who followed... Um, now I've lost what I'm going to say, but I had a specific example, and now I've lost it. I'll let you know if I get it. What was the motive for such a lie? What advantage did the conspirators derive from their lie? From which lie? Perhaps. From the lie that Jesus wrote. Um, with, with the exception of the inevitable torture at the end, a form of, uh, um, of status amongst other believers, perhaps. But again, to your point, they were hated, scorned, persecuted, excommunicated, imprisoned, tortured, exiled, crucified, boiled alive, roasted, beheaded, disemboweled, and fed to lions. Disemboweled. Plus the, uh, and the thus their, thus their version of worthless at the time didn't they live on famously right. forever. Exactly. I'm sorry? No. 
So here's another uh, argument that he's got on this one. If the resurrection was a lie, the Jews would have produced the corpse. They said he rose. They're lying. What did the Jews have to do? He'd still be in the tomb. Go get the, uh, go into the tomb and get it. But then they said the disciples stole it. But how did the disciples, how would the disciples have stolen it? Getting past at least two Roman guards, the seal, and moving the stone. You, well, and you, you have to imagine there's some kind of interrogation of the Roman guards. The Romans themselves wouldn't have let it, let it, let it go. Exactly. Penalty of death. And Historical fact. They don't seem to have contradicted exactly. what they said it was in the gospel. He's got one more. These guys, if they're lying, right after all of the events of the uh, beating and the scourging and then the crucifixion and the burial, then march right back into Jerusalem and claim that he rose from the dead. And yet, there would be so many people there to argue against it. The proximity to the events make it impossible to fabricate it because they were all right there. The hallucination theory that they were duped if you thought you saw a dead man walking and talking, wouldn't you think it more likely that you were hallucinating than that you were seeing correctly? Then why not think the same thing about the resurrection? Number one, too many witnesses. There were 500 people still alive that saw him. When they wrote this down and when they said it, there were 500 people that had seen him. Too many witnesses. The witnesses were qualified. They had first-hand knowledge of the facts. Number three, 500 private hallucinations is one thing. There have been 500 individual sightings of Elvis. But there's never been 500 people at the same time that see Elvis. <laughs> hallucinations usually last a few seconds or even minutes, but never hours and certainly not 40 days. Hallucinations usually only have... Really <laughs> yeah, it's a long, <laughs> long Hallucinations usually happen only once, unless you have a flashback, smoking that except to the insane. Hallucinations come from within, from what we already know, unconsciously. This one he surprisingly said a lot of stuff that they had never heard before. Not only did the disciples not expect this, but the disciples actually thought he was a ghost and he had to prove them wrong by eating. Well, and also, didn't he tell Thomas to touch He did. I'm getting to that one. They touched him. And hallucinations do not eat. And they spoke with him and he spoke back. Minus two for the apostles could not have believed in the hallucination if the body was still in the tomb. Well, and that's the first thing they check. That's right. If the apostles had hallucinated and then spread their hallucinogenic story along with the peyote and the mushrooms, the Jews would have stopped it by doing what? Producing the body. 
And a hallucination would explain only the post-resurrection appearances. It would not explain the empty tomb, the rolled away stone, or the inability to produce the corpse, or the guards. So, The style of the Gospels is radically and clearly different from the style of all myths. It speaks in absolute definitive facts. It does not uh, put anything arbitrary or exaggerated events. Everything seems to be meaningful. Several generations have to pass before an added mythological element can be mistakenly believed to be a fact. There just wasn't enough time for that. Eyewitnesses would have been around before that to discredit what was being said. Um, We know of other cases where myths and legends of miracles developed around a religious leader, Buddha, Lao Tzu, and Muhammad. In each case, many generations passed before the myth surfaced. That's not the case here. And then uh, we've got the two layers. The myth theory has the two layers. So that's where we're talking about the historical Jesus, um, who was not divine, did not complain, com- claim divinity, perform any miracles, and rise from the dead. And then second, we've got this mythologized, mythologized layer in the Gospels as we have them now. But that just wasn't the case because of the time frame. Here's one that I didn't think about to disbunk, debunk that. The first witnesses of the resurrection were Peter and John. No, oh, they were women. And in first century Judaism, women had low social status and no legal right to serve as witnesses. Why, if you're going to make up a make up a story, why would you choose start, start there. people that couldn't be witnesses? Um, well, it made it such a big part of like they didn't like hide it; they, they called it out that she was the first person. Exactly. 2 Peter 1.16 repudiates the mythical interpretation. So, logically and from the facts, if you eliminate the other four possibilities, the only one that fits the facts is that he rose from the dead. What's the Sherlock Holmes phrase? Yeah, that that all the, eliminate all the, the logical all the possibilities. Yeah, all the, the logical possibilities. The logic, the in the illogical, no matter how unbelievable, is the truth. <laughs> so this is important to me um, because I can't get around this event. We were talking about the resurrection a couple weeks ago, and Taylor said, "Well, there's, you know, there's there's nothing in the." in the Tanakh that says that the Messiah is proven to be the Messiah because he's raised from the dead. I, I never said there was. What I am saying is we know that this man lived. We know that he had a wonderful life, changed people's lives, was a Rebbe, if you will, and preached repentance. Whether or not he's the Messiah or not, I don't know what you do with the fact that he rose from the dead without an agent. Nobody helped him. Nobody made him rise. Nobody touched his body. He rose from the dead. Evidently by the hand of Hashem. I don't think we can ignore that. So to say that, well, 
the only people that actually believe that the apostolic writings are true are Christians should not be true. The fact that the apostolic writings exist and Christians exist, and this evidence demonstrates that it did happen. Now, most of Orthodox Judaism appears to be ignoring the fact that it happened. They just don't want to talk about it. Now, I don't believe that. I don't believe the apostolic writings. Let's talk about something else. Well, I mean, I had, I had written down here somewhere. Yeah, one more thing I get right here, and then we're done. The Epistle of Barnabas, the Epistle of Clement, the Shepherd of Hermes, Theophilus, Hipp Hippolytus, Origen, Quadratus, Iranius, Melito, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Dionysius, Tertullian, Cyprian, Tatian, Caius, Athanasius, and Cyril, as well as Eusebius, and at least three of his opponents, Celsus, Porphyry, and the Emperor Julian, all talk about this as fact. Not apostolic right. I, I do think it's very curious. I don't know what the reason is. It'd be great to know. But like, I think it's very curious when you read ed like educated, scholarly Orthodox Jews they they never, from what I have seen, I, they might, but I have just never seen them quote anything from the apostolic scriptures as if like using it as anything historical. Even I've seen quotes from Shakespeare. I've sure. seen quotes from Homer. Sure. And we from have, and we have Aristotle, more. From we like, have more texts and more documented evidence that the apostolic scriptures are reliable than we do of Shakespeare. Right. Yeah. Right. So like they just you see quotes it. from just about everywhere to just you know, enhance a point or, sure. or, or describe a historical occasion or something like that. But you definitely, I, I just haven't seen okay. them being used as like a, a scholarly text in any way. You and I an sat down Jew. with an Orthodox rabbi and he admitted he had never even read them. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you would expect them to though. Why not? Never seen Why not? Them, you never see them quoting like the Quran in their discourses either. It's yeah. just a different religion. Yeah. They're not just going to quote it because people say it's the Jewish Messiah. Well, I, I think there's a big difference between not quoting it and not even acknowledging that it's reliable. Well, like I said, it's not even on the radar. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's my point. Yeah, but that's how do we point, feel about their point? It's, their point is it's a different religion. It's not on the radar. Yeah, to, to Peter's point, though, um, how do we feel about Muhammad, you know, tying his winged horse to this place at the you know, what's now the cartel. The point is exactly like the that. same. That I acknowledge that Muhammad is a historical figure that did live and that he wrote a book. I acknowledge that. I have a copy of the Quran. I have read it. I acknowledge that. Yeah, Orthodox Jews tend to avoid the entire thing completely. They don't acknowledge that there is historical evidence of the resurrection. They don't acknowledge that there's historical evidence that he lived and did not violate the Tanakh or any of the other things because they wouldn't even talk about it. Sure. Which makes the argument completely untenable because now they wouldn't even talk about it. So no, you're talking about Yeshua? That's in the Apostolic Writings. I don't believe they're. I don't believe they're true. Well, uh, okay. And we're done. He, I just the reason that I because I, you're right. Like there, there are. I, I haven't really seen you know quotes from like the Quran either, but like. The reason that the Apostolic Scriptures are the odd one out is because of how old they are and how they are written 
like about Jews. Like it, it's not like and they're Jews. right. You know, so it's not like a completely different people group. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with Peter. I wouldn't expect any Orthodox Jew to read. Yeah, um, now today, now, but they were a Jewish sect even back then. They were a temple sect e even back then. I, I still don't. I still wouldn't expect. Uh, a, I don't even think what the Apostolic Scriptures wasn't was widely in circulation enough. To, you know, especially well, you don't have the a until, yeah. Well, no, yeah, I, I get that. No question about it. Quotes back They're, then when they were in temples. So. I, I wasn't saying that. What I was saying is, it's not like it's a different religion. Christianity is a different religion. I'll grant that. But when you sit down with an Orthodox rabbi and you say, "Oh, hang on," I'm not talking about Christianity at all. I'm talking about what I believe. I practice Judaism. I may not practice it as well as you do, but I'm practicing Judaism. And the original followers of Yeshua were a temple sect of Judaism. Right. They well, can't disassociate what Christianity is with the I believe that's writings. exactly right. And therefore, but, Judaism uh, now, Orthodox Judaism, is poisoning men and teaching them none of this happened, none of this is true, you don't have to mess with this at all. Well, but just because it violates what we believe. Just to just to kind of further clarify, I'm not talking about just like your your average kind of Orthodox person. I'm talking about like like the scholarly guys. Sure. You know, the ones that, and as I said, the ones that don't singularly quote Jewish text. The right. ones that are all over the board. Right. I mean, no, Rambam is actually a perfect example. I mean, he's quoting so many Greek scholars right. that that is a completely different religion too. Okay. Why would he even bother yeah. with like a lot of extra yeah. extra I, Judaism stuff? See, for Rambam, I get it. Rambam's, you know, part of his argument is specifically against what he understood Christianity to be. And modern Orthodox Judaism today, I, I get it. They are fighting against what they see as a dramatic threat to Judaism. They don't see it as a similar religion. And they have cut the cord by saying, we don't read that, we don't talk about that, we don't acknowledge that. Next question. Let's move on. Gotta count the arms. That's why, I think. And so you can't have a legitimate discussion. So, that's the deal. But I, I think if anyone would just take the time to look at it, logically and historically, it is undeniable. It is undeniable that these events occurred outside of the apostolic writings, outside of the fact that they're religious documents. You've got more corroborating evidence for these happenings than for anything else that's happened pretty much in our world. So what are you going to do with that? Well, I'm, I'm going to believe that he's the Messiah because of many of the things that you said and you guys said. Yes, I have faith. I haven't seen him. I have faith that the apostolic writings describe historical events. I don't even have to go to the fact that they're inspired and fallible and all that. In fact, I have problems with some of the writings. And at least how we've interpreted them and how we've translated them from the Greek. But to say, uh, Joe says that uh, Yeshua's name was taken out of the Talmud. Okay. But there's 
pero está en Chile. En el nombre de Cristo. I don't need anything more than historical evidence that these things occurred and now I have faith that they did and he is the Messiah and I see amazing parallels and I think sadly my conclusion so far is the reason why we can't have an honest discussion with Orthodox Judaism on this topic is because they don't want to have an honest discussion on this topic And it's probably because of what Christianity has done. And I think that's okay. It's sad. I think it's okay. Yeah, it puts us in a very interesting place, though, you know, because we wouldn't agree. I mean, I, I completely, 100% sympathize with, like, the their position on all of this based on history. Like, we, we talked about this when we were going through the wall stuff. Exactly. It's like, whoa, we totally understand that they would be very anti-Christian they would not want to even go there because yeah. they, they just the, under, the way that it's been presented the way that it's been misrepresented I, I get it I, I, me too I feel but it very is so, it bad is so sad about that. that that you can't know the argument why is it sad? Um, because I, I think that uh, I think it's important to recognize and know that, that God has sent his Messiah and will send him again. I think it's important to understand that we have a Rebbe and we are to emulate him and they're missing out on that. The best they have is another guy. Great guy, many great men, granted. Was this packaged a lot of things, and so was that the divinity of Messiah? I didn't, I've not mentioned the divinity but of Messiah. I was, that's what I was asking you. Is it all the best they have is another man, you said, yes. contrasted to another man? To another man who is the Messiah. Right. Yeah, it's a different guy. He's not just a tzaddik, he's a tzaddik who's also the Messiah. I, honestly, I have trouble with. Uh, with the question you had to ask last week or the week before. What difference does it make? What difference does it make in your life that Yeshua is the Messiah? Now, even if you grant that, that he rose from the dead, he left. I have trouble with that. I don't have an answer for that. I don't get it. I have life and that more abundantly. Come on. Well, his spirit is within it. Come on. Yeah. I don't get it. I, I, maybe I should. Maybe I should be in the chair and you should be on the stool. I don't get it. But I'm not done yet. I'm still learning. But I think that it's sad to me that his own people have been blinded for my sake, partially, and have been blinded by Gentiles through their misdeeds and a misappropriation of the faith and they're missing out what are they missing out on a relationship with the king king messiah or king messiah or hashem? well they can't be missing out on a relationship with, with hashem because i think their relationship with hashem 
is probably better than mine. Try and keep them on top shelf as best I can. Level with kingdom size. I'd, I'd like to, to learn a little bit more and discuss a little bit more about like, then what? You know, like after you kind of come to that conclusion, then it's kind of like, well, how, how are we supposed to interact with, with the Jewish community? You know, like I've always appreciated your, your activities and, and your desire to reach out and be involved like culturally. I thought, I always thought that was just spectacular, you know, and, but then it just comes down sometimes to like basic questions become very tricky. Like when you're at work and you might be like reading something, I, Colby and I were talking about Israel and like, the uh, the owner of the restaurant was like, "Are you guys Jewish?" And and we we're kind of like, "No." And he's like, "Oh, I, I heard you guys. You're talking about Israel. You it's, like you sound Jewish." You know, he's basically saying. And we we're like, "Uh, <laughs> like, we don't, like I, what am I supposed? To, I don't you I, know." No, I I I didn't have that great fortune. No, I wasn't born Jewish, but I practiced Judaism. I know, but that I is, use that a lot. I use it all the time. The practicing Judaism part is so tricky, though. Yeah, I think, because I, 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 I think the the, the, the crux of the of the question that Greg has, and I've gone through it too, is I can't say I practice Judaism when I'm not plugged into a Jewish community. Because I agree with that. One, well, I, I, I totally 100% do that. Believe that that's a, that's a prerequisite. I think it's worth having because honestly, that I've known quite a lot of people that have converted, and it's been that primarily that's been the issue, rather than the whole Jesus thing. It's been because they they acknowledge that there is not a messianic community, which is even near a uh, an, an orthodox from style community. And most of those people forsake Yeshua as a Messiah. Right, but but because that they're caught in the scripts, it's like God, I, I want to be able to do more mitzvot. I you know I right. want to be able to serve you more, right. but I can't do it inside this messianic world. Right, I get it. But right. the question is, is that what we should do? Should we dissolve our our Identity uh -huh. as Gerim to fake being Jews. I, uh, and I would say it is wrong. And, and I don't have a problem with somebody sure, who wants to do it. But sure. But I just I, don't see if that's right. the right I, thing. All I'm trying to say is I think that honestly is is even um, has its own time of discussion as well as the how do we prove that Jesus is his Messiah type sure. of thing. Because I think the, the people I know, even in Texas, that, that went through a conversion or whatever. It, like I said, it was majority of the issue was was like the, they they wanted to do it right. Yeah, I get it. And, yeah, um, and I, I totally I, I sympathized it. when Colby said that too. He he was just bringing up like the it's so hard not being able to have like like not being able to sit down at a kosher restaurant like and and be the same, you know, like to not or be able have, to go to the mikvah right here in town. Right, exactly. I and I I totally sympathized with that. All, all I know is God I, I, put us on this planet at this time. As Gentiles. As Gentiles. I know, that's, that's, that's my thing. I'm kind time. of like, well, so, so now what? And, you know, if the promise to Abraham is that he will bless the nations through his seed. Because then it, it still comes sort of full circle back to, like, our original discussions regarding, like, Foz's theology right. versus, like, Tim Hegg's theology and some of the other figures in the Messianic movement because... Like Foz seems to be the most consistent regarding this, being like, well, yeah, yeah, Torah, excellent, great, more of its vote, the better, except these, you know, that's sort of their explanation for maintaining 
like the but, that balance. But Although, but as I, you visit, they're inconsistent. They claim that the sign commands are those for Judaism and only Judaism, and yet that is not their practice. That's the report from Greg Upham. Yeah. Greg Upham. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not consistent either. Right, well, and then also the, those in the one law camp are certainly not consistent because if there's one law, they're certainly not like striving as hard as they can to like learn the ins and outs of halakha in order to try to keep the one law. So it's like, I don't know, it's just, it's, there's not a whole lot. I, we, we are definitely, we find ourselves in like a very new place, very new place, because even within the Messianic group, like with the establishment of the UMJC and just in the in the way that it looks to like the outside, like Jews, it's it's so fragmented and weird. And it is weird. <laughs> and in fact, uh, Daniel Lancaster and his wife were taken by Bellator because of the way we do things here. We're trying to be as consistent as we can to grow and to learn and to still distinguish ourselves from Judy from from being Jews. So it's not an easy question. And we're not gonna get an answer yeah. here. You know, I don't think we're smart enough. Pete, come up with an answer. Gee, wait. I, I talked to a lot of Jews about this in Israel when I was there. Yeah. And and it was and it was amazing how consistent their message was. Are you asking religious Jews, non practicing Jews, or just All anybody who claims to be a Jew? Any, any, what are you asking them? Well, the conversation would come up, and, and, and they would ask, you know, well, what, what do you do? And I'd be like, well, I do this. And they're like, okay, that's pretty cool, but you're not Jewish. No. And, and, and what they would say is, it's really cool that you're doing all this, eating kosher, you know, all, all these things, but you're a Gentile, you don't have to do that. Exactly. They're very, very specific, they're very, like, you know, you know, you're, it, you know, you could convert, but I don't recommend it. Right. You know, it's the party line. You don't have to do this. You could convert, but we don't recommend. It. So, I guess my my question to you know, to your your what you're saying is, I want to be plugged into a Jewish community. You know, that, that's that I, I can see the the appeal there, but you know, just the sheer amount of people. I, I mean, it's amazing how much this came up while I was in it. I was only there for for six days, and it's amazing how many conversations I had about this one thing without even trying. Um, but the, the message seems to be, well, no, you're a Gentile. You're doing great, and I love that you're doing that, but you don't need to convert. So, so I, I'm not here to do with that, but I, I find it significant that that seems to be the message you know, of so many, so many Jews. And that's, I feel like you probably experienced that message because you weren't like, you were, you, you were having those conversations in a neutral environment. Like, I think the conversation changes when you show up at their shul or show up at well, like, someone's did you, house. Did you feel Shabbat. uncomfortable at the Havad house? Yeah. Did you feel uncomfortable because you're a noob or did you feel uncomfortable because they made you feel uncomfortable? Oh, definitely because I was a noob. They oh, did not sorry. make me feel uncomfortable. Okay, so yeah. the fact that you're a noob is not our problem. Interact again. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> well, yeah. and I think the conversation is different also. I don't know. I felt well, the people who talked to here in America about this subject, it seemed like there was a lot more Angst? Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Then when I was in Israel, yeah. the, the Jews you talk to in America, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I, well, I mean, if, if you listen to any of Jeremy and Ari's broadcasts, they mentioned that this, the spirit, the psyche of a Jew in Israel 
is 180 different than it is in America. And I, yes, I, I had like and physical evidence of that. And the reason is because in Israel, everyone's Jewish. You're surrounded by Jews. They're right. strong and that's their turf. Charlotte, they're the minority. They're automatically going to be defensive yeah. and oh, protective. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, bottom line here is paddle, we paddle our own canoe. Um, last word. Got to be. Yeah, nothing. Come on. Is give this us the, the final of this series? This would be, I, I, I think this is going to be the final on whether or not Yeshua is the Messiah and the proofs on either side. I think we need to leave it to the men now to come to some conclusions. Um, so any idea what we're doing next week? I don't know what we're doing next week. What do you want to do? I, I, think, and, uh, I think it's time that, and it's ample um, opportunity to talk about the whole community thing and, uh, and to kind of flesh out um, different interpretations of, 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 of what it means to be in a, in a Jewish community and kind of hear mm -hmm. some of where, where people are coming from on those points. Because I know that I think there's a lot of diverse opinions, and it would be good to at least you know, hear some. We can hear them. I just don't know if there's anything we can do about them. Because we're not a Jewish community and we'll never be a Jewish community. And the only right. the only recourse right. is to leave the community and join a Jewish community. Or And that's what Taylor just did. Right. He left the community to join a Jewish community. I get it. Right. You know, I get it. However, I do think that he was deceived. I think that he was led down a path and he right. was coerced into coming closer and closer because he's he's a neat guy he can read hebrew he can lead the prayers i mean he's going to be a feather in the rabbi's cap no I, question I, about it perhaps perhaps this is something is um we can talk about this later but i uh i think it's like logically i can see why 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 people end up there like to me it actually totally makes sense I get it too. I view the issue as a catch twenty two. So do I. I get it, John. Because I, I thought that you didn't. Um, I didn't get it. You, you just said it. you don't have to be in a Jewish community to practice Judaism. I do believe that you can practice Judaism outside of a Jewish community as long as you're in a community, one that wants to practice Judaism. You can't do it by yourself, and you can't do it in a community that's practicing Christianity. Okay. But I think the best you can do is the best you can do. And right now, and that's what I was saying, where God has placed us in our time in history, what are the choices? Forsake Yeshua, which I think is a mistake, and, and convert to Judaism. If you don't believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, you definitely, in my mind, should convert to Judaism. I said it on camera. Is everybody clear with that? Okay. If you don't believe Yeshua is the Messiah, and you believe that Judaism is true, you should convert. Okay. Why would you not? Like you just said. Join the people. Do I think that that type of conversion is correct? No, I don't. I don't think there was any such thing prior to that era. I don't think Ruth ever went through ritual conversion. I, I just don't believe that, that, that that's what it was. And I think it was a reaction to right. Gentiles and so forth, and that's what it is today. So you want to be a part of their club? You join their club. And as we said, like an, an act, like, you know, a a justified reaction, you know, just from history bearing itself out, which, and that was kind of my, I, I just was thinking about this stuff recently and just thinking, like, that would be, if, if there's an opportunity to lessen that, like, to change that ingrained way of thinking about Gentiles, 
by by becoming better at like handling the the Tanakh, handling scripture, handling our lives, like being more righteous. You know, like if, if we could if that could just open up a little bit more doors, as it has with some people. I mean sure. like, we know some rabbis that are just really they're cool with us. Like there's a there's a particular rabbi, Bizrat Hashem, who might fly down from New York to do the the bris for us and he's like super open to like anyone he doesn't even care what religion you are he barely asks it's just like but he's still orthodox yeah he's still an orthodox moil and it's just like there there are some of those guys out there that are like oh man like i let's let's talk like if you I mean, if you're interested in doing the same stuff i'm doing that means we have common ground sure. instead of going like hold on, hold on you might do all of that but wh- who's your mom where is she from? Yeah. Is she? I mean, and then, you know, the bottom line is, if, if Judaism truly believes that um, practicing the mitzvot makes you closer to God, and that if everyone were to practice the mitzvot, every person on the planet were to practice the mitzvot, Messiah would come. Why would they not encourage us all to do so? Isn't that what Chabad's like? No. Well, Chabad wants you to convert. Only if you're... Serious. Well, and Pete's sort of shaking his head because I, you, it was from you and, and some guys that I had heard that it's it's actually not as big of a push as I once thought it was. Converting, like it's not necessarily like, oh, you don't believe in Yeshua anymore. Well, then you can convert. It's like, well, you might be able to, but it's yeah, I, it depends on. I, get a lot it. I mean, of we we read through through the Talmud and all of that that you know you can't trust the Gentile for four generations and you know I get it they're, they're very wary and I don't I don't blame them but I think that Yeshua is a big stumbling block and the scriptures say that he is a stumbling block and I think it's it behooves us to figure out what we're supposed to do with that do we try and draw near and get as close as we can to his people to his word and to his land or do we just throw in the towel and forsake the Messiah and join his people for the sake of more pleasurable or um, easy life when it comes to to Halakai you know I I don't know (laughs) the the road has got to not be easy especially you know for Taylor not even living nearby it's it's not going to be easy all right, let's uh, let's call it a night, guys. That was uh, was good, good conversation. And I will. Uh, there was something I wanted us to talk about next week, but I can't remember what it was, and you don't know what you want to do. What I want to do next week? Yeah, what do you want? No, to do? I'm interested to hear. You're interested to hear what I want to do next yeah. week. Yeah. Right, so we'll come up with that. Maybe we can do something together. Doubtful. Doubtful. Mm-hmm. All right, let's uh, let's pray, I'm shall we? Can we pray real quick? Okay. All right. Father, bless Jonathan as he leaves. Bless us all for the time that we've had. Father, for those that uh, are trusting in Yeshua, I pray that you'll strengthen their faith and their trust in you. And for those that are wavering or have lost that faith, I pray that you would restore it, Father, that you'd make yourself real to them and uh, demonstrate that you are, in fact, the Messiah. Either way, Father, we pray for your soon coming, that you would send the Messiah soon and in our days. And we'll thank you for it. Amen. Amen.